economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Luke Graham, the co-producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. With us, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute, and Wayne Angel, chair of economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Nate Johnson, my fellow producer and graduate assistant. All right, so I teach personal finance and have learned through teaching it, as well as personal experience, that human beings have trouble with sacrificing today to save for tomorrow. And so today we want to explore that a little bit more and some maybe biblical areas of that issue, as well as empirical items that have come up with marshmallows, believe it or not. So Dr. Clark, can you uh, run us through this marshmallow experiment and what it, why it was done and, and what it's all about? Sure. So it's called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, kind of like the Stanford Prison Experiment, right? Slightly different outcomes. And uh, I think we've done a a podcast on the Stanford Prison Experiment before, so listeners can go back and and listen to that. In the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment, which was done in 1972 by some psych professors, researchers at Stanford, what they do is they put a child in a room and they put a marshmallow in front of them. And they say to the child, you know, is a marshmallow. They actually did this with pretzel sticks too, depending on, you know, whatever. But uh, they say, you can eat this now and I'm going to leave the room. I'm going to leave the room. You can eat it now. Or when I come back in 10 minutes, if you haven't eaten it, I'll give you two marshmallows. And so for children, this is the decision of whether or not, you know, they can eat the marshmallow now, which is something that they want, or you know, it's just 10 minutes and then you get double the the return, right? And the, obviously the results of the study are that some children do and some children don't wait for the 10 minutes. And that's not surprising. But what was surprising was that the same researchers followed these students throughout their lives. And the result of the 1972 Stanford study was that students who were able to wait the 10 minutes and receive the two marshmallows, that is, they were able to delay their gratification. Um, These students had better SAT scores, better educational attainment, lower BMIs, lower body mass index, and a bunch of other life measures. So it turned out that these students in this 1972 study did better across many facets of their lives, right? It's not just that throughout their lives, they were able to get more marshmallows, right? They were able, these students seem to perform better on a number of tasks. And one of the things that this was taken to show is that uh, the marsh, the ability early on to regulate in this manner and to kind of sacrifice now for uh, consumption later, this is a really kind of basic character trait, something that Uh, is very useful and is useful across a broad range of domains. But a lot of people also took this as showing that this is basic in the sense that it's difficult to learn or unlearn and seems to be a character trait that once, you know, is kind of sticky, uh, if that makes sense. Um, 
And this is, you know, it's a fact that it's, it's hard to grapple with as a social scientist, but it's one that's pretty consistent, actually. If you do things like twin studies and adoption studies, what you find is environment does matter, but it's always true that your original parents and the outcomes for them, their lives have some impact on how, how a child is and how they act later. It, maybe not that it causes it, but there is a relationship between those two things and that doesn't go away. So yeah, uh, uh, among other behaviors like delayed gratification, maybe we could call this seems to be one that uh, we could say, even though this might be a wrong way of thinking about it, we could say it's in inherited to a certain extent. Would you agree, Justin? So there's a debate in social science about whether traits are genetic or environmental. Right. And uh, so this is, I think, what you're getting at. I think nature versus nurture. Yeah, nature versus nurture. <clears throat> and it seems like a lot of traits, and you're getting at this with your uh, discussion of twin studies, seem to be at least strongly or partly genetic, right? So this idea that humans are a kind of blank slate seems to be empirically not supported by the evidence. But I think it would also be a mistake to think that because there are genetic components that these traits are all genetic. Right. And I, I don't take you as having said that no. either, right? No, no, I don't but agree I, that. I think that uh, it's a false dichotomy and to say that, you know, they're either genetic or they're either nature or nurture. Right. I don't think they're, uh, I don't think it's all nature or all nurture, but right. surely both of those things come into play. And I think that has to be the, the answer. One thing that came to mind with the kids that they probably wouldn't have been thinking, although maybe that maybe some of them did was, was there risk in waiting? So I'm guessing that most of the kids have if mom and dad was involved, especially that if, if they were told they were going to get double the, the quantity after 10 minutes, they pretty much in their minds had a hundred percent certainty that they were going to get double. But in life, if we're waiting, there's a risk factor that, well, maybe they lied to me or maybe it's not going to be true. And so it's better to grab the single marshmallow now that a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush, so to speak. Well, mom and dad weren't involved. In the, <clears throat> okay. So it's a, you know, it's the man in the white coat saying this, right? But one of the criticisms, and I think you're hitting us on the head, one of the criticisms of this of this experiment was that children from low-income families might have exactly that kind of thought process, right? That, I, look, I don't get the opportunity to get these things. And I know I've been promised things in the past that yeah. haven't uh, come to fruition. So there there are these kind of confounding factors. And there's, there's a criticism within the past 10 years <laughs> A study, I think it's like called like the Bing study, but it's not related to Microsoft Bing or whatever. <laughs> I think it's one of the author's names where, you know, these confounding variables are thrown in and they say, look, it's also the case that students from disadvantaged backgrounds have a reason to doubt the, um, the, <clears throat> the doctor and therefore to account for a, an element of risk that yeah. maybe a children from uh, well-off parents don't mm -hmm. have to have to uh, take into consideration. But let's let's lay out why it might be the case anyways. Let's let's set the possibility that the experiment was wrong aside and let's lay out the why it would be the case that children who don't eat the marshmallow tend to have like better outcomes, you know, as we generally measure good outcomes in their lives. And I think to do that we can kind of get into economics and interest rates and lending and borrowing. So a, a classic way to think about borrowing money or lending money is that when you lend money, 
you're delaying current gratification because you could use that money for something else, right? You could use it to consume. You could, you know, buy a new car or you could, you know, go to travel to some different country, experience something fun, go to a theme park, go to Disney World. But instead of doing that, you choose to put your money in an institution that's going to lend it out. And the response that you're going to get from that is by lending out money today, you're going to collect that money plus more in the future. And so if this study is truly predicting success, maybe the reason it is, is because when people take this mindset of delaying their gratification, it tends to be the case that throughout life, you can delay gratification and accumulate more wealth or delay gratification and accumulate more success. There's all sorts of things, but lending and borrowing is maybe a good way to think about this. And one of the classic examples I think of is like the book by Erwin Schiff, which is, you know, how an economy grows and why it doesn't. And there's a, even a cartoon version of this that you can um, read for, you know, elementary school kids. And he talks about fishing for a day. And, you know, if you actually, uh, there's somebody, you know, if you want to increase your number of fish, what you could do is forego fishing for a day and spend that labor making a net. And in that case, you won't have any fish for that day. But if you're successful on making the net, then it allows you to catch more fish the next day or whatever, right? And so that would be foregoing that fish for that day in hope in the hopes of getting more fish later on. And I think what you're getting at with savings is you know, and investing, you can do that too. But it's not only that you get more later on, like this is how economies build wealth, right? Because when you save in you know a, a free economy, that money can be lent out to somebody else who has a productive project for it. Yeah, that's exactly right. In economics, we have something called a production possibilities frontier. This is just like a line that tries to illustrate the fact that there are trade-offs between things. And so if I give you some fixed amount of money and I tell you with this money, you're allowed to buy candy bars or t-shirts and you go to the store, there's a lot of different combinations that you can buy, right? If I give you a hundred bucks, you know, you could buy all a hundred candy bars, uh, if they're $1 each, or you could buy just 20 t-shirts if they're $5 each, or you could buy some combination. But the point is, the more candy bars you buy, the less t-shirts you can have. That's the production possibilities frontier. This is true of consumption and savings and investment as well. The more consumption you have, the less savings and investment you have too. And that's exactly what Justin is talking about. If you lower your consumption of fish for a day and are hungrier today, you can save and invest more for tomorrow. And the more people do this, the more that your future production possibilities frontier grows. In other words, there's always going to be a trade-off, but now maybe instead of being able to fi get five fish a day uh, with your net, you can now get 20 fish a day. And so if you want to make another net, well, you don't even actually have to forego a full day of fishing anymore, or you know, all five fish for the day. You could fish for just one third of the day and make a net the other two thirds. And so not only have you increased your consumption possibility, you've increased your ability to invest and make more nets. So there's sort of this compound aspects to investment. And then you can sell those nets to somebody else who doesn't want to sacrifice fishing that day, who is mm -hmm. a pretty good fisherman like me. And uh, I would just buy the nets from Peter, who isn't as good at me at fishing. And, and then uh, we have a, another growth, of, another shot of growth of the economy. So I think part of what Adam Smith brought to the table very early on in 1776 was there's certain institutions that are more conducive to saving and lending. And so historically, 
If you have gypsies and vagabonds, I'm watching the 1883 show right now where they're moving across the, uh, well, actually from Texas up to Oregon. And it was the wide open wild west. As you're moving along, you're not stationed in a place to where you could save. And so you have to, everything has to be portable as you're moving with your wagons around. Same is true if you don't have a decent police system, court system. If you are stationary, but um, people, there's a lot of thieves around, you you don't have in, institutions in place to be able to do this saving function that has the benefits that can lead to greater wealth creation. And that, I mean, that gets to the heart of why private property is important, right? Because right. um, it's even if there are police, if something is owned in common, there is the incentive to consume as much of that as possible, right? The bird in hand is better, is better to consume right now because there's no guarantee that if you abstain from consuming it, that other people won't consume it, right? So you put three children in that room with, and you say, here's some marshmallows, you know, you guys can all eat them now. Or, you know, if all of you abstain, you know, I'll give you more later. Like all one kid has to do is eat all the marshmallows themselves. Yeah, we quickly run into the tragedy of the commons. Exactly. And, uh, which was certainly a, an aspect of the Wild West as well, that you had the wide open space of the buffalo and mm -hmm. we might as well kill the buffalo to get them as quickly as we can because everybody else can, nobody owns them. And so property rights were uh, critical to establishing the wealth that we've come to enjoy here in the United States. All right, well, this looks like a good spot for a break. And so afterwards, we'll come back and dig a little bit into maybe some scripture on the value of these sacrifices and continue our discussion that way. We'll be back in just a bit. Please visit our website. There you'll find our events, blog, and swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123PovertySucks or on Facebook at Gordon Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you have some high school students that are interested in these types of issues we discuss, we've got a great affiliate membership for high school students. All you have to do is attend some of our programming. We've done some Bitcoin book clubs and uh, presentations like our Inflation Fools and other upcoming events that you can check out on our website. If you're interested in something like that or have a high school student that is, contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right, so we're back, and uh, I had to do a little Googling on sacrifice in the Bible. Uh, of course, the greatest sacrifice was from Jesus Christ dying for our sins. So that, of course, is out there. But then we got into burnt offerings, and it wasn't quite what we were looking for. So um, I ended up getting into Luke, or I'm sorry, Matthew, and it was the parable of the talents. And so we had uh, three people that were asked to do something for their master, and um, two of them went out and doubled what they, what they did. Uh, one had two talents, doubled it. One had five talents and doubled it. And then one just buried it and uh, kind of put it in the mattress, so to speak, which didn't earn any return. <clears throat> and so the master's rebuke back was, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. 
well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. And so there's certainly a, a calling there to be good stewards of the resources. Uh, I think this parable, if we dig a little deeper, has something to do with the heart of the servant. Didn't really, um, you know, believe that the, the master was a God. And I think we tend to serve plenty of other gods and for the wrong purposes as we go about doing our savings and consumption uh, day to day. So I think there's some messaging there. But I think when your heart's in the right place, there's certainly a calling to be doing some of the uh, saving and investing as part of your life here on earth. So Peter, what do you think on some of that stuff? Yeah, I think there certainly is a general maybe we could say recommendation in scripture that uh, you focus more on the future in certain aspects. And so there's several verses about storing up your treasures in heaven. This is obviously the idea that, well, you should be uh, focused on the future. In fact, like heaven, you can think of this as the the ultimate uh, future that you could focus on. It's it's something way down the line and you might uh, deny yourself today, you know, but, but heaven is this, uh, you know, ultimate goal. And a lot of religions, and so I, I'm personally a Christian, but a lot of religions do um, have like an, this understanding of delayed gratification kind of baked in them, uh, probably because a lot of religions sort of function uh, as a way to uh, organize society. Uh, again, this isn't really the intention of any one religion, but it's sort of maybe a, an unintentional result that happens anyways. And so a lot of religions have the idea of sacrifice. Well, what is sacrifice? Well, you destroy something that you could have right now and you don't use it for yourself. Like if you're, you know, in, in ancient days, sacrificing like a cow to the gods or something like that, you're destroying something that you could have eaten yourself. And the hope is that in exchange, you will receive more in the future. I think to some extent, even though I don't think like sacrifices to gods uh, in this way, like works, I, you know, I'm not a pagan. I, I do think that these rituals reflect some sort of deeper understanding that we have about how it works and how life works is if you're able to deny yourself today, you actually can reap more rewards in the future. And I think it, even in very primitive religions where the sacrifice is a destruction and not a kind of savings, um, they do serve the function of establishing community ties because you can tell that somebody else is actually willing to forego certain uh, consumption because they think it's in the best interest of the community. And, but a lot of this kind of sacrifice doesn't have to involve destruction. And a lot of what you can see things like churches doing things like tithing as a, a kind of sacrifice that a community member engages in, right? And and I think Peter's exactly right that a lot of the, one of the reasons that religions tended to, and maybe, maybe it is just a, a side effect of it, but a lot of them were the organizing principles of the societies in which, the organizing institutions in this, of the societies in which they operated. And so having individual sacrifice for the general good tended to be a very successful strategy for a community to flourish. Yeah. And not only do religions do that, but actually states do that too, right? But the mechanism by which they enforce the sacrifice is slightly different. So <laughs> religions tend to enforce, tend to say that if you give up something now, you know, you'll get something 
uh, much greater in return. And, you know, this is like the kingdom of heaven. On the contrary, and it could be karma if we're going non-Christian side, right? That's sure. Something good yes. Happen. Um, yeah. Most religions have this kind of feature, right? Yeah. Depending on what religion you are, you probably think that the other ones may work, but not deliver on that final promise or something like that, right? States do this too. They make people sacrifice, but usually the way they do this is by saying, you know, we're going to collect these taxes and it's, we're going to put them towards maybe infrastructure or whatever, maybe a build back better plan or something. <laughs> uh, but if you don't comply, it's not, well, then I guess, uh, I guess you won't be able to reap these rewards. Um, you actually get thrown into prison or something like that. Yeah. I think you're right that there's first off a selection mechanism going on here that maybe all world religions that are successful share this feature because they're successful, right? Unsuccessful religions that don't require you to think of saving and sacrificing for the future well, these religions fizzle out because no one saves and sacrifices for the future to maintain them, right? Countries, I think, work the same way. You know, I, I, in general, I'm not a big fan of the idea of collecting a bunch of taxes and using it on infrastructure. I generally think that private individuals could do this better. But we, like, we can be honest and th- say that, well, let's imagine that you are being taxed and what do you want those tax dollars to go to? a good tax dollar project looks a lot more like investments than consumption. Yeah. One of the things that you'll read in a standard econ textbook, which again, I think is maybe a little generous to states, but it's still true is that, you know, is a national debt bad? And a lot of econ textbooks say, well, it depends on what the national debt is buying. If it's national debt, like consumption, in other words, you know, think of it in your own life. If you're taking out $50,000 student loans, you're using $10,000 for tuition and the other $40,000 to have fun. Uh, yeah, really bad, you know, decision you're making, really bad debt that you're taking on. But it's because it's being used for something bad. Yeah. Well, and I, I think both of you two seem to dodge the redistribution aspect um, that the state uh, has become somewhat of a charitable foundation that has crowded out private institutions. There's mixed literature on on that to the degree of of crowding, but to me, it's always uh, resonated pretty well that they're not complementary, that if the state takes care of the poor, then we're going to give extra money that way. I think it falls the other direction. And so as the state has grown in uh, redistribution, which to me, uh, there, there, there's also studies that show if if municipalities or states or you know different levels of government are using redistribution, those cities or municipalities tend to grow less. Like people don't like that. But if they are investing in roads, bridges, infrastructure, kind of the harder things that is more of an investment, then they do tend to grow. And so I think there's literature that supports uh, what we're talking about here in terms of what is the government doing with those tax dollars makes a difference. But the crowding out part is the part that has always bothered me. That was way back to my dissertation, um, looking at crowding out of private distributions from or private help, private charity by the state taking a larger and larger role. And now we're at the point where 65% of your federal tax dollars are going towards redistribution. Now, uh, most of that is Medicare and uh, Medicaid and Social Security. So, but they're all transfers, transfers from the young to the old, transfers from the healthy or the, uh, yeah, the healthy to the unhealthy and um, transfers from rich to poor. All of that is a large part of what the federal government does. Yeah. And I, I also want to say like the crowding out, it's not only that you're crowding out private charity, you actually crowd out good behavior to a certain yeah, extent. Right. And I, I think you were getting at this too, Russ, which is that 
uh, when we have large transfer programs. Uh, well, let me step back. One of the reasons that it makes sense to save in the first place, besides just you can grow your wealth in the future, is people also save for if things happen that are bad, right? And so, you know, financial experts tend to recommend like six months of savings on hand, anywhere from six months to, to more, like to two years is the recommendation. I think six months is, is the, the lower recommendation. And why? Well, if you lose your job, you really need some time to find a job and get some money coming in. And so you need to save. Or if there's a natural disaster, you need you know money backed up because who knows when you're going to be able to get your next paycheck in if your business is having problems, that sort of thing. And so when government instead decides, well, we're going to you know bail people out, then actually they decide that they don't need that readiness, right? If you know that you have an unlimited stream of unemployment checks coming or if you think that a big disaster is going to be met with, you know, stimmy checks, you know, every five seconds, then you actually don't have that incentive to save as much. In fact, the government has even created a disincentive to save. And the biggest one being our monetary policy. We've talked about this in previous podcasts. When you print a lot of money, you lower the value of the money that's out there. That's what inflation is. And so when we have this crazy Federal Reserve policy of let's print, you know, suddenly 25% of the dollars into existence from March 20 to now, you run into this problem of higher inflation and you're, you're disincentivizing, you're punishing the saving behavior that we consider both good for people for disasters, but also, you know, behavior that grows this, this society. So in a literal sense, this Federal Reserve policy is degenerate. It, it causes societies to uh, deteriorate. Yeah, to tie this back to the marshmallow, I mean, I, I think with what we discussed earlier that low-income households, may, we might have seen their kids more likely to take the marshmallow. In this context, I think government institutions are causing Americans, more and more Americans, to take the marshmallow. Yeah, because right? they're saying, uh, you can either eat the one marshmallow now, or I'm going to come back in five minutes and cut it in half <laughs> and take away half of it. It's like, this becomes a no-brainer, right? No one is stupid enough. No, no one has... Uh, this crazy preference for less in the future than more now. So uh, I'm glad we brought it back to the marshmallow because I, I think this is the the very important thing. And I, I like what you were saying too about, or both of you were saying about that has this crowding out effect. That, and it's not only a crowding out effect, it's kind of a vicious cycle in the sense that yeah. when the state takes over these policies, it's not just that you go, well, now my money is going to the state. So I don't need to give that money to charity. You also, it's also makes uh, people think, well, I actually don't even have the moral responsibility to take right. care of the people that are needy anymore. And not yeah. only do I, have, do I not have the moral responsibility to take care of people who are needy anymore, I don't have the moral responsibility to plan for my own future anymore. And all of these things get abstracted away from you. And yeah. so it creates this incentive structure where since you don't have the incentive to think about these things anymore, you no longer think that, that, that they are your responsibility. And then nobody is actually doing this kind of savings. And in an economy where everyone is, where nobody's doing this kinds of savings, this is a really bad set of collective decisions for everyone to make. Yeah. Now, one of the criticisms of the marshmallow study is they said, well, we re-ran it recently and they ran the study with fewer uh, children but a more diverse background. And they said, we actually didn't find the life uh, correlations that they found in the 70s, right? Children who were able to defer consumption weren't doing better in all of these areas that they were doing in the 70s. And one reading of that is to say, well, uh, maybe the study in the 70s was wrong then, right? But another way to read that study is, 
well, maybe we have structured society now so that it no longer rewards deferred consumption. Absolutely. That's what came to mind for me right away. And then it's not a criticism of the study. It's a (laughs) criticism that, oh no, we have given up on these institutions like private property and things that actually do reward deferred consumption. Yeah. Yeah. And so far as we think that uh, deferred consumption is something that, you know, is just blatantly and obviously good. Yeah, this should be really worrying. Yeah, and the the blatant and obvious example is go back to the fishing. Do you prefer a society that's getting more fishing nets and fishing boats and you know fishing scopes? Russ has this well, electric bass finder <laughs> that he can see the fish <laughs> under the water, or would you like to live in a society where you're diminishing your number of fishing boats because no one takes care of them anymore, and once they're done, they just you know it falls apart and there's one less boat. And no one ever replaces them because that's the other version of society, right? That that's the alternative. It seems pretty clear to me which society I would prefer to live in. And yet I agree with Justin. I, I think increasingly, uh, which explains the difference in the studies, increasingly uh, we're moving towards uh, the, the second society. There. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think Europe is an example of where the crowding out has really been impactful over the yeah. years. Again, there's other things with culture that might contribute, but I, I did a joint project with uh, a colleague in Lithuania, and basically the giving there is just non-existent almost yeah. um, uh, for private giving because we were doing a comparative study, and he said just culturally that's that's the way it is in Europe, and so the state is really um, in some way, uh, and again, cult- combination of culture and state, but has uh, usurped that out of uh, the private sector. All right. Well, that looks like a pretty good spot to wrap up. If there's any last final word or it'll be me. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. I'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us and you can feel free to forward it along to others as well. We appreciate you listening. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.